You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, it is the last Sunday in a series that we have been doing uh, on the church. So we've called it Remember. What does it mean to recover the glory of church membership? So it's sort of been the, uh, a theme about understanding what the church is all about and what is our place in it. Next week, we start studying uh, the book of Daniel. And like we did last fall for First Thessalonians, we have these nifty uh, copies of Daniel for sale out in the uh, uh, foyer area there over by the uh, the cafe, and it's really a great, if you didn't buy one for First Thessalonians, I'd encourage it. It's really a great format, so I don't know if you can see from back there, but it has the text of Daniel on one side, and then on the other side of the paper, it, it's lined. Uh, no, it's not lined. It's just blank. It's blank paper so that you can take notes. So you could take notes. You can mark up the text in here. You could study it during the week and, you know, underline or star things or make notes of things. You could take notes on Sunday morning and, uh, you know, really be able to track as we go through this together. It's also got a very cool cover. I don't know if you can make it out from where you are, but it's got lions uh, all over the cover, uh, these kind of gold lions, uh, which probably refers to the lion's den, but probably more refers to the lion of the tribe of Judah because Jesus is the star of the book and not Daniel. But it's still going to be a great great study, I trust. So be praying and grab an Illumin. This is called the Illuminated Scripture Journal. Grab one of these for a mere $2. It's a deal at twice the price. So you can get that uh, after the service. But today we're going to wrap up looking at uh, Romans 12 verses 9 through 10 page 552 in the Bibles under your chair. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one under your chair and you can, uh, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Just take that home with you. Uh, But you can uh, read along in Romans 12, 9 through 10. We have a phone number up there. If you have questions as we're going through, you can text in a question and uh, we answer those on a a podcast midweek that comes out on Wednesday. So we'd love to uh, do our best to answer any questions that you have. Uh, when I was going through the various aspects of church life to teach on in this series, I had an idea to teach on church as family, which is something I've never taught on. Uh, and as I began to read in the past weeks, I just began to realize, wow, this is, uh, I'm sure uh, there's many pastoral omissions in my life. This is one of the greatest that I have never taught on this. I, I, we all know this intuitively. We refer to parts. Uh, we refer to this. But until I began to read texts of Scripture, uh, to read and study books written on the topic, uh, I didn't realize how much there is. So I started with a couple of verses only to talk about, and then whittled it to one verse, and basically whittled it to a phrase and largely a word in a phrase, because I realized I began to look at this. There's, there's so much here. So... Um, Anyway, we're going to jump in and talk about church as family. In chapter 12 of Romans, we we did a message on chapter 12 of Romans when we talked about scattered worship. It begins by saying, in view of the mercy of God, with our eyes on mercy, you know, let's live our lives as a living sacrifice before the Lord. So we talked about that a few weeks ago, that that's our scattered worship. As we go into our day, we live as worshipers before the Lord in whatever we do. 
as Paul goes on in the chapter, he begins to move from sort of everyday worship to focused uh, relationship within the church body. So he narrows it, and in verses 9 to 10, he really begins to talk about the grand vision of love for one another and what love is to look like. It is the characteristic feature of life in the church. And so he really focuses on that. And when he, when to do so, he takes this image out of culture, which we're going to look at in a minute, out of their culture, which was brotherly love. And he co-ops the idea of cultural brotherly love. And he begins to explain that this is the picture of what life is like in the church. And what he's saying is, fundamentally, that the church is a family, and we are to relate that way. So let's read verses 9 through 10 in Romans chapter 12. This is God's Word. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. As we read throughout the New Testament, what we find is that we are regularly awakened to the purpose of the gospel. And one of the primary purposes of the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for us, is that grace is to produce something in us so that something comes through us to others, and that is love. And it's not just any love, but here we see it is a brotherly, sisterly, sibling, family love that we are to communicate and express to others because of God's love for us. I mean, the big idea of what I want to talk about today is that because of the Father's love for us, we are to love one another like family. Now, I know he doesn't talk about the Father here, but that's where we get the idea. The very fact he says brother is we are brothers because of the theological truth that we have God uh, as our common father adopted into his family. So because of the Father's love for us, we are to love one another like family. Love, verse 10 says, with brotherly affection. Now, the term used here is a term that you're familiar with. The Greek term, is, if it's transliterated, it would, uh, it would be the word Philadelphia. Brotherly love, brotherly affection. But it is very difficult for us to understand what that really means in our world because that term had a different meaning, a deeper meaning, a more profound meaning in the Greco-Roman world of the first century that Paul is writing in to readers, especially Gentile readers, it had a very different usage. We use the word brother in all kinds of ways. We speak of people in the military, perhaps at war, as a band of brothers. Uh, so we speak of brothers in that way. Uh, guys that are, have joined the same college fraternity are called brothers. So we speak that way. People even sometimes just call people uh, one another, brother. Hey, brother. Uh, or even sometimes people you meet, hey, thanks for that, brother. Or uh, 10 or 20 years ago, hey, bro. You know, so this is, this is language that we are familiar with in using in different ways. But in the first century world, a Greek use, the Greek use of the term brother was restricted absolutely to the family. There were no usages of brother like we use. And so commentator um, 
A New Testament commentator, Dick Lucas, writes, the New Testament is the only place where the word brother has been found outside the context of a home. A first century reader would therefore come across it here with a sense of shock. That's a strange usage. Wait a minute. Is everybody related down at the church? What are you talking about? Brotherly affection or brotherly love, Philadelphia, is a unique bond in the first century Greco-Roman world. It's a unique bond that is reserved solely for a human family, a blood family, or if someone's adopted into the family, the, the family unit, the nuclear family. That is what a brother is. But Paul is telling us, just as Jesus did, that when we believe in Christ, we are joined to a new family, an eternal family. The, the Christ makes this point multiple times uh, in radical ways. At one point, people come to him and say, hey, your mother and brother are outside. And I guess they're not really following him at this point because he says, who's my mother and brother? It's those who believe in me, who trust my father. These are my brothers and my mother. He's saying, yes, my mom and brother are outside, but my priority family are those who believe. Now, obviously, his mother and brothers ultimately believe. Or Jesus said one of the most radical statements in all the Gospels, hey, you think I came to bring peace? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division between brothers and sisters, parents and children. What's the division? Those who follow me have a new family. Those who reject me, uh, though there's a remaining blood family, which is very meaningful there, but there is still a different family. And you may find from your blood family persecution, resistance, rejection, if you follow me. So following me in all cases doesn't bring that. Sometimes the whole family believes. Often that's the case. But if the whole family doesn't believe, then, then Jesus says you are joined to uh, a, a, an eternal family. It, it's very radical thinking that we are to love one another like family. Now, we don't think much of the revolutionary concept that this is, but it really is just that. Professor Joseph uh, Hellerman, in a book about the church's family, he writes about the first century mindset of family and brotherhood in particular, and he makes three, uh, sort of three principles that are helpful to understand this passage. He says, principle number one, in the New Testament world, the group takes priority over the individual. Now, that's true in some cultures today as well, still the case. Not in the Western world, but in, in other parts of the world, that's still the case. So the first idea in the New Testament that's very foreign to us is that it's not about the individual realizing their destiny, coming into their whatever you know, their deal is, but it's about the group. And so your actions can bring honor or shame on the family, uh, on the village, on the city, uh, on your trade, if you're in a trade guild, one of the trade union guilds, you, your actions can bring, can, can honor or dishonor the entire guild. Your actions can honor or dishonor Rome. Rome was viewed in, as a high authority, so everybody identifies with the group more than the individual. Individual actions are tied to the group. Principle number two, in the New Testament world, a person's most important group was his blood family. Groups more important than the individual most important group is the family. Principle number three, in the New Testament, the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage, 
It, let, me, let me rephrase this, or I'm about to say something heretical. Let me rephrase it. In the New Testament world, in the New Testament Greco-Roman world, the closest family bond was not marriage. It was the bond between siblings. That's the closest bond. Part of this, we've talked about marriage in first century Roman world, and we've talked about how the common practice was for a man, it was very male-driven, to have a wife to build a secure home and have children. And then he had a mistress for romance and meaningful relationship, and then he had temple prostitutes or prostitutes of other means for, regular, for his regular needs. So these are the three ways he interacted with women. So the marriage was not the centerpiece uh, like it is in the biblical world. And really, the ultimate commitment, he writes, is to the brother, to the sister. It's to the sibling, the lasting family relationship. And so Hellerman writes, I trust that when you see this, you're beginning to see why we cannot simply import our American idea of what it means to be a brother or sister into our interpretation of the New Testament. Brother meant immeasurably more than the word means to you and me. It was their most important family relationship. At this point, you are now prepared, perhaps for the first time ever, to properly appreciate what early Christians meant when they referred to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The most obvious implication of what we have learned is that there would have been no place in the early Christian church for an American individualist. Totally foreign. We live in a totally foreign world with a totally foreign mindset. We see the world through the eyes of individualism, and this skews the way we read much of the New Testament. We don't tend to see the priority of the group. We don't tend to see the church as family. We don't tend to see ourselves joined as loyal brothers and sisters to our fellow church members. Our church is very, our church culture is very different. The church culture of North Dallas is very different than this. Our church included, I'm not saying those churches out there, all the churches, us included, very different mindset. We live in a city with great churches. When I was on sabbatical last summer, uh, I, uh, I visited, Ginger and I visited churches throughout the city, through Frisco, throughout this city, one, we went to Pro, one in Prosper, but Prosper in this city, and had great worship experience after great worship experience. Uh, I, it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience to get out and about and uh, worship in the churches with pastors, many of whom are my friends, and see what's happening in our city. So we have a lot of good churches, and it's very common just to pick up and move from church to church, sort of like joining a new club. And there's a place to leave a church for sure and join a new one, even in the same city. But to join, like, this is a club, or this is just, this is the new meeting I attend on Sunday mornings. I used to go to this meeting over here, but this is the new meeting I attend on spiritual morning, uh, Sunday morning. But the church is not a club or an institution only or a meeting to attend. The, the church is a family. The church is a family. And every believer is called to find a spiritual home, to be placed into a spiritual home, uh, into a family with quirks and challenges. And don't worry, you just bring your own quirky self in there and make it more quirky. Like your family is, like your extended family at a family reunion. You go, wow, we're related to all these people? Same way in the church. We're spiritually related to all these people? Yes, you are. Yes, I am, and, and they're saying the same about you right now. 
That's why we call our new members class Welcome Home. Welcome Home. Everybody who goes through the class doesn't end up becoming a member, but, every, but it is the introduction to membership and to our church. Welcome Home. What are we saying? We're saying the church is a family with brothers and sisters. We're joined and united together. Lee Eklov, in a book called Feels Like Home, Tag, the tagline is, how, rediscover, how rediscovering the church's family changes everything. It's a bold statement. He says, when Christians look for a church, they're looking for a home. They don't need a place where they like the music or the preaching or where their kids are happy. They need a home because Christian discovery and growth can't happen without one. The Bible knows nothing of Christians disconnected from other believers. Jesus' people are a family. They are the, quote, household of God, Ephesians 2.19. The Christian life cannot be lived properly as a loner. Now, you might think that a church that feels like home would be easy, but actually, it's a miracle. Christian love and Christ-like service don't come naturally at all. Neither do praying together or welcoming those who don't seem to be like us. In fact, life with our Christian family is counterintuitive at every turn. Everything that makes a church feel like home depends on the Holy Spirit working wonders within and among us. We're prone to blurred vision, like thinking music matters more than knowing one another's names. Let me read that again. We're prone to blurred vision, like thinking music matters more than knowing one another's names. Or that big churches naturally accomplish more for the Lord than small ones. They may or may not, by the way. That's my statement. Uh, We think we can fast-track outreach or discipleship without the slow work of raising a spiritual family. After we've rested our faith in Christ, our number one duty for him is to love one another. Or as Paul says here, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another as brothers and sisters. The New American Standard says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So how can we live out devoted love together? I'm going to give three pictures that I think relate to, are are really three terms more than pictures, three terms that relate to walking out brotherly love. And the first is this, something that maybe is happening as we're talking right now. The first one is we need to have a family identity, family identity. The most common designation of a Christian in the New Testament is brothers and sisters. That's the term that's used most. I, 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 you know, I write you brothers, and it's always an inclusive term meaning siblings. I write you brothers and sisters. That term for Christians is used 139 times in the New Testament. The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. We're called Christians three times in the New Testament. We're called brothers and sisters of family 139 times. And so that is to shape our identity. Brother, brotherly love. Before we can love one another in, a, in the way God desires, I believe that we have, to have, uh, we have to have our identity properly shaped because we act out of our identity. We think out of how we see ourselves and perceive ourselves. We relate based on how we see our role in the bigger picture. And so it's really important that we have God's identity. When God looks down at this gathering, uh, you know, his, his, his thought is, at least in part from the scripture, is family. 
the family has come together. And so if we have that as an, as an attitude, if we have that as an identity, I mean, it really solves a lot of how we respond to one another. It, or at least, it really directs a lot of how we respond to one another. Because our identity is not patron of an institution. Our identity is not primarily attender of a meeting. Uh, it's, not, it's not student of a class, though a disciple's a student. It's primarily a family. That means I'm to be devoted to you like I am to my family, even my extended family. Even though it's talking about brothers here, but it, just taking the family picture larger, I think it still applies. I'm to be devoted to my brother, to my family, to my sister, regardless of differences. Everybody in a family, I don't know about your family, but everybody in a family doesn't think exactly the same. When I got married and then we had children, I thought my family would be different than the family I grew up in and all the cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents. I thought everybody in this family would just think like I do all the time in all places forever and ever. Marriage is a real wake-up call to that philosophy of life. Wow, Ginger doesn't agree with me on everything. This is amazing. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess she's wrong. I don't know. But... And certainly I'll raise kids who will agree with me on everything, never have a different opinion, just carbon copy, just all six of us, exactly alike. I've got three little grandsons, so I'm hoping that generation will think exactly like me, completely in every detail. But we think, you know, but we all think different as a family. And that's healthy in a lot of ways. But we don't all think the same. We don't all... Uh, have the same preferences or likes. And you know what? We live in a culture right now that is polarized and deeply divided. And recapturing this image as family, I believe, may be one of our strongest calling cards to the culture. It may be one of our strongest witnesses. That people who don't agree can still be family and love one another. I grew up knowing this. I mean, I, just, I was raised in this. Uh, I said everybody thought alike in my family that growing up, they didn't. I mean, and I thought that they would in mine, they didn't. But I grew up, you know, uh, with differences in my family. Uh, and there's differences in this room, and there's differences in every church. Take political differences. We don't all, if you don't vote the same, but you're a disciple of Christ, you're still in the same family. That's a lesson that's, that's lost in our culture right now. So, for instance, I grew up in a family with my mom and her mom, who would be my grandmother, both godly women, both with the Lord right now, my mom and my grandmother, both with the Lord, but they didn't agree politically. One was a Republican and one was a Democrat, and they didn't give me permission to say which was which, so I'm not going to tell you, but one was Republican, one was Democrat. So I can remember growing up, and they were Texas ladies, so they were nice, bless their hearts. They were nice. They didn't, uh, they didn't yell at each other over politics, but there was always jabs. And I can remember somebody saying something about Nixon. I'm, I'm old. And, so then the, and the other, my mom or grandmother saying, well, 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 somebody saying something about Jimmy Carter. One of them loved Jimmy Carter. One of them didn't like Jimmy Carter. One of them loved Ronald Reagan. He was close to the second coming. The other did not like Ronald Reagan at all. I can remember them talking. Both loved Jesus, though. And so we would get together as a family, and everybody hugs and kisses on the way in, and we generally got along. There'd be a few of these polite southern lady jabs along the way, mom and daughter, and then we hug at the end, and we all go home because we're family. And we've got something deeper than who you voted for. There's something more foundational than that. 
that we are in the same family, and that is true spiritually as well. In a divided nation, we need to be people that are demonstrating love and respect and care for others, that, that we really check. Now, our, our faith should in, inform our voting. I believe that for sure. I believe you should pray and vote your conscience for sure. But at another level, we need to check some of those allegiances and alliances at the door. Like when you get on the airplane, you walk through the metal detector, like who you're voting for, I think we check that at the door and we come in and say, Jesus chose us, he's our king. And and you may be red or blue, but we all have the same king. That's the important thing. Family means there's something deeper than a political preference, though I understand our faith drives our vote. And Christians on both sides will explain to you uh, how they arrive at their conclusions. We're, we're divided racially in this nation. We're divided racially. And family identity goes a long way to help us love and serve one another. And to say, you know, there's something far deeper. We may have differences in background, differences in the way we view the world, according to our, our upbringing, according to where, what nation we grew up in. I think we have 25 to 30 nations represented in the attendance of our church. And so maybe how you grew up, you view things differently, but there's something more profound than that. And it, it, it is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Healthy families Healthy families, now we're even talking about family, for some of this is hard because you have a very, uh, family's just a very hurtful memory. So when I say family, I'm talking here about the ideal family. Healthy, ideal families seek to understand the, the experience of their family members, not say you have to have the same experience I do. I have a relative, not my wife or my children, but I have a relative that has struggled significantly with crippling, almost deadly, depression. And this relative I have spent time with uh, on more than one occasion uh, following an attempted suicide. So what's the appropriate response to that relative when we are together? Would it be, I don't get it. I mean, can't you just experience life like I do? Can't you just believe what I do? Can't you just you know, can't you just, I, I, don't, I don't get what the, what is it really? That would be evil and insensitive. No, I, I'm coming and saying, I'm so sorry. What's, what's going on in your world? What are the kind of things that trigger you into a downward spiral? How can I be available to help when you start feeling the darkness coming in next time? What does it look like? How can I help? How can I pray? What can I do? What do you need? Because this relative is, is experiencing in that moment life in a very different way than I am. But we're family. And I'm not saying come over here and do it this way. I'm saying I'm coming to you and understanding your experience. That's what good families do is we seek to understand the other and love and serve the other. That's what doesn't happen out there in our culture. We just yell louder. 
just yell louder. This is, my, this is my experience. This is who I am. But the reality is that we all have different experiences. And I'm not saying, in, in that analogy, I'm not saying any race represents me or any race represents my depressed relative. I'm just saying that we interact with one another on a, in a way of understanding, to try to understand. That's what a healthy family acknowledges. How do you experience the world differently than I? That's what I want to know. And we experience the world differently in this country. I can't speak for the whole world, but in this country, based on your race, uh, you experience the world differently. I've, I've learned that. I didn't know that growing up. Again, I thought my whole family would think just like me. And I thought the whole world, but man, that's so myopic. No, this is, I've just got this very narrow experience. And other people have a very different experience of the world. Rufus Miles, who served as an assistant secretary to Eisenhower, to Kennedy, to Johnson, uh, he was later an author, and he was known for what was called the Miles Law, because he coined this phrase. He said, where you stand depends on where you sit. Where you stand depends on where you sit. What was he saying? He was saying, your cultural context and your life experience shapes your perspective, and so you stand up for things based on where you sit and experience things. And in a family, with the illustration I just gave you, that's what we have to do. What, what, are, what are you experiencing? Seek to understand. Good family members understand this. It's vital for a church family in a world that is politically and racially divided that if we are going to be light and a refuge to a world that is quickly getting exhausted with all of this, then we need to be a people that listen and understand and try to enter into the experience of the other and love the other. Family identity affects how we relate to people who think differently than we do. It also affects how we speak to one another. It affects how we speak about one another. Listen, I talked to my brother yesterday. I have a, a a, a, a physical brother. I, I'm getting confused. This, this isn't the church. This is my actual brother. He lives in Houston. So I spoke to him yesterday. I love him. Let me tell you what. If you came up to me and started gossiping to me about him, first of all, I would say, I don't believe any of it. I'm believing the best. I don't know. It could be true, but I'm believing the best because I know him, and he's my brother. And why are you telling me this? You should be talking to him if you have a concern. That's how families act. I have two sisters. They're great. I love them. You come up to me and start slandering one of my sisters? How does that go over in a tight-knit family? Is that really? Tell me more. Yet we walk into the church family, and we don't think anything about chewing up anybody in the family, talking freely, critically, not talking to them, not talking to our brother and sister, talking about our brother and sister to somebody else. That happens in human families, but that's dysfunctional and not healthy. When that, if, if you have a concern, you go to your brother. If you have a concern, you go to your sister. And not just avoiding negative speech. Brotherly love means we speak in a way that builds up our brother and sister. Families that have an ethic of speaking life, and especially a Christian family, speaking grace into each other's lives, that, that prov provides a very healthy environment versus a family that has an ethic of being critical and tearing down one another. You can feel that 
just being around those kind of families, maybe not in any given day because the healthiest family, the most godly, gracious family has bad days, and the worst family gets to go to Disneyland once a year. So, I mean, you, can't, you may not catch them, but if you could watch a video of a family life over the course of a year, and you were to see that primarily there is edifying speech, encouraging speech, speaking words of life and grace and love, children that grow up in those kinds of families often, not in every case, but often... There, there is a vibrancy to them. They've grown up in an environment of laughter and joy in those kinds of environments, and that's very securing. If we're family, you get my point. We, 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 we relate to one another differently than if we are not. The family gets the priority of my time, priority of my money. I mean, I love, now I'm going to use a physical family illustration here now to be clear. So I love all you people. But when it comes to my money, uh, I'm probably not buying you a birthday gift, but I'm going to spend way more on my grandsons than, than I am on you. I love you, but money is invested in blessing family in a first way. Do you see what I'm saying? Same is true with the spiritual, spiritual family. Where I, I'm, I'm viewing my spending in view of the family, viewing my time. Should I come on Sunday? Should I go to my small group? That's not a question that occurs in a family. In a family, the kids don't say, hey, Dad, should I come to the family dinner where we join and connect, or is it okay if I just play video games? Hey, whatever you think. I mean, life's busy. So play those. <laughs> Never. No, we're gathered. This is our family. We're joined together. We may argue at the dinner table. It may be icy and quiet some nights. It may be vibrant and great other nights. I don't know. But it's family. The kid's going to drop, you know, the, the, the two-year-old's going to knock something down and make a mess. Not everybody's going to like what was prepared. You may not like this sermon. That's okay. We're at the table. We're gathered. That's okay. We're family. It means our time, our money, our affection. Affection is expressed in tangible ways. Entering your shoes, seeing things from your perspective, making Jesus, he is, our common denominator, and celebrating that. Making my finances and my time available to you. If your family member in a healthy family, if your family member says, I need some help moving this Saturday, that's a priority thing. Yeah, I'm going to help my family. They need me. It's a priority. So love one another with brotherly affection to the readers of Romans, at least the Gentile readers, means this. Take the most intimate, committed, loyal relationship that you have in your life. Oh, that's my brother. That's my sister. Okay, that's now the church, is what Paul says. And if they're Christians, that's great. We're all in this together. And you don't shun your uh, natural family once you become a Christian. You love them and serve them all the more to point them to Christ. But you have a new family, family identity. When we take our identity and I look across this room and say, brother, sister, brother, sister, this meeting's totally different. When I show up in the living room, sitting in a circle in the community group, and I say, brother, sister, it's very different than class, small group that I had to attend because my wife drugged me here. Very different if we're in the family. Another thing would be, I got two more that'll be quick, family affirmation. Family identity, family affirmation. God has approved of us in Christ, and now we extend that to others. Brotherly devotion means that I'm accepted 
and welcomed and affirmed by God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And now I am to relate to others with the same grace he's extended to me. I'm to relate to others, to welcome them, to bring that same type of affirmation. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into verse 9 in detail, so, uh, but I am going to say something because I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying today. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Affirming another believer and welcoming them does not mean, according to, ver- according to verse 9, it doesn't mean that we approve of every belief, every action, every choice that our family members make. We are to hate what is evil, and if our family members in the church are practicing unrepentant sin, uh, then it may mean that they're not really even in the family, genuinely, in the spiritual family. So there is a place to speak to people as they wander and call them back, to welcome them, but to speak the truth in love and say, you know what, we're brothers, so can I tell you something from one brother to another brother? I'm concerned. Cling to evil. I mean, cling to good. Abhor evil. Cling to good. And I'm afraid this direction, this choice, this way you're going, it's going to do destruction in your life and to those you care about. And it most importantly dishonors the Lord. So there's a place in a family to speak up and to lovingly come alongside those who are making choices that are personally destructive. And most of us have had those kind of conversations with family members at some point because that's necessary. So I I want to emphasize that. But I want to transition and say, I'm going to make another point, which is the brotherly love, the brotherly affection has something as well to do with accepting people in all of their weaknesses and all of their failures. I'm not talking about a life of unrepentant sin. I'm talking about being a human struggling to follow Jesus like we all are. And there is a place When you think of a brother, when you think of a family and a healthy family, there's a reality that when we go home, when we walk through the doors of our home, there is a sense that I can hear be myself. I can be real. I can be transparent. I can be known for my weaknesses and all, and I'm still loved, and I'm welcomed, and I'm still part of the family. This is something that is so foreign in our culture that if you ever touch this in an environment, it's like, this is another world. Because we are judged and evaluated all day long out there. People experience criticism and evaluation. They have to prove themselves. They have to earn acceptance. They have to merit the respect and love and affirmation of others. But in the church, if you are in Christ and the Father has declared you righteous and has welcomed you and adopted you in his family, that's what he's done for me. And based on that, I welcome you. It's not exclusive. It's open. I clipped something, and I don't know where I clipped it from exactly, but I'm going to read it to you. This is, this is something that's very helpful to me on this verse. It says, devoted in brotherly love. A key element of family love is, or should be, that it's a given. You don't have to do, I'm sorry, you don't have to be anything to be part of your family other than be the child of your parents. You don't have to put on a show in a healthy family. You don't have to put on a show You don't have to be physically attractive. You don't have to be intellectually smart. You just are family. You're not on a stage or in an audition room trying to be good enough. We're at home with people who know us and love us. 
or at least we all instinctively have the germ of an idea that that's how it should be. We all sense that family has gone horribly wrong where, where you have to perform, where you run the risk of being disowned or shunned by others. The idea of not being good enough for our parents is, for many of us, a haunting and horrible one. In a gospel community, we should not have to fear that. It should be a place where we enjoy and give that family kind of love to one another. It's a love that doesn't need one another to perform or to always be on our best behavior. Verse 9 says, let love be genuine, by the way. And if we're always faking it, that's not genuine love. Gospel community can be a place where people are allowed to be themselves. If that means our shortcomings and sin are on show, then so be it. Remember, we are committed to good love, which wants to stick to the good and hate evil. So there should be a challenge. There is a place for challenging, making that point again. And there will be messiness, as there is in real families. But what we want to avoid is pretense and hypocrisy. Don't let your gospel community be a place where you pretend to be good. You are not performing. You're part of the family with brothers and sisters who love, care, and look out for you. That is a, to me, to my mind, a glorious vision of what it means to be part of God's family with brothers and sisters. So we're not only on edge, but we're welcomed and can be transparent about our own failings and our own sins. In a blog post this week, Scott Sauls wrote the following. He wrote about Tom, a comedian Tom Arnold. I don't even know if he's around anymore, but I remember him back in the day. And he said, comedian Tom Arnold once confessed in an interview about his book entitled, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. Can we pause? That, that's the best book title imaginable. <laughs> he was in an interview about his book, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. And he said that most entertainers are in show business because they are broken people looking for affirmation. Listen to these words of honesty. He said, quote, the reason I wrote this book, Arnold said, is because I wanted something out there so people would tell me they liked me. It's the reason behind almost everything I do. Saul's writes, Tom Arnold is not alone, who cannot identify with the craving for affirmation. Now, here's the point. The kind of affirmation that he's talking about there is only found in the Father through the Son, through the work of the Son, impacting our heart by the Holy Spirit. That's the only place we find that kind of affirmation. Matter of fact, that's the heart of, that's the result of the gospel. Tim Keller's famously said that we, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. More sinful than we believed, but we're more accepted than we ever dreamed. That's the combination that's what we want. That's what every heart longs for, isn't it? Jesus, who knows me best, knows everything about me, loves me most. That's what every heart is longing for. And the reality is that we can only receive that in Christ. No person can provide that kind of affirmation. No one in the family can provide that kind of securing affirmation in an ultimate sense. It only comes from Christ. But the great privilege 
that we have as brothers and sisters in the church is we get to demonstrate that love to one another. We get to communicate that kind of grace. We get to be the grace of God sort of with skin on, expressing that in tangible ways and in words to others. We get to affirm the grace of God to others in very practical and tangible ways. Love one another with brotherly affection. Be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. This call is a call to take the very grace of God that we have received and communicate that same grace to others who have received it as well. See, that's what happens, that kind of reality where I don't have to be on my best behavior and what's going to happen. When we can be ourselves and we can confess our sin and someone says, I forgive you for sinning against me. I forgive you. We're family. Some people never experience that their whole lives. When you're fearful and a brother comes alongside you and says, you know what? I understand your fears. I'm fearful about stuff as well. Let me pray for you in your fear. Comes, doesn't, doesn't judge you, but comes alongside you to pray for you in the midst of your fears. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed and your sister in the Lord comes over to your house, which looks overwhelmed. It's a mess, but we don't have to get cleaned up to, to please people. That's a metaphor for some of those companies coming. Oh, they're going to be here in 10 minutes. Cram everything into the closet. Get it out. Get it. Pick that up, you know, to the kids. Pick everything up so it looks good. And they come in. Oh, hey, hey, great to see you. We were just, just sharing memories as a family, you know. That's what it's like to go into community group. Let's get everything behind. Don't, don't, say, anything. don't say anything about that. But in a real healthy environment, we say, no, I feel overwhelmed. And she comes to your house, and she sees that you're overwhelmed. And she says, let me sit with you in the overwhelm. Let me help you. What can I do? I've been overwhelmed many of times. Your family. When family's overwhelmed, family shows up. Not with a pointed finger, but with helping hands. When you experience loss and your brother comes and cries with you, weep with those who weep, that's family. When you experience a great victory, a job promotion, a new relationship, you're pregnant, and she comes alongside, and rather than being envious of your blessing, she celebrates it like it was her very own. That's family. That's loving one another with brotherly affection, affirming the grace of God. Family identity, family affirmation. This last one's very brief. Family culture. You visit 10 homes, structures, apartments or houses, condos in this church. You go to 10 different homes, you'll walk in, there'll be 10 different smells. Every house has a smell. Not a bad thing. I mean, unless they cook fish the night before, but it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just every house has a smell. Every family has a culture. Some families are sports families. That's their culture. That's what the family's built around. Some are academic families. You better get A's. Some are book families. Some are camping families. Outdoorsy. We do outdoorsy kind of family things. Some are angry families. That's the culture. We're angry. Some are fun families. It's just party all the time. Dad, mom, and dad just want to have a good time. It's a, it's a, it's a fun family. Every family has a culture. What's the family culture here? It's on the sign outside. We aspire to be a family culture of grace. 
grace. It wasn't that we looked it up and there was no churches named that in the city. So, oh, that one's available. That is a core, not, it's not a core value, it's everything. It's everything, is the grace of God. Every family has a story, and that story informs their culture, and that culture affects how they relate to the siblings and the family. Our story is that we know the God who created the universe and made all things good and perfect. He created two people to live in that world, to fellowship with him, to rule co- as co-heir, co-regents, to rule over his creation. And they rebelled against him and sinned and rebelled and fell, and then that broke everything. Their sin brought death and destruction into every aspect of the planet, including us. And so we are all born sinners. We know this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Everyone in this room who's honest looks inside and say, I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. We all know it. We all know it. And so we're all of creation was longing for God to come and bring Redemption, to make all things right, really, to ultimately make all things new. And that's why Jesus comes. Jesus comes, he dies on a cross for our sins, taking our sins upon himself as our substitute. What what went wrong, he bears the curse, the penalty for what went wrong. He's buried, he's raised on the third day. And by being raised, he defeats sin and all the evil powers that are uh, lined against God's people. And now he rules over this this world. He rules over his people by grace, and he's building a family. One day he will return for that family. We will celebrate what the Bible describes as a great wedding feast. There will be a great family reunion. It's a family picture, a family reunion, and he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth, and we will all live way beyond happily ever after. It will be glorious. That is the story of grace. We did not save ourselves. We did not make ourselves right with God. Our family culture comes from our family story, and here's our family story. We didn't do anything to get in this family. That, that makes a big difference. I didn't do anything to get here except to sin and rebel against God, which cost him sending his own son to die for my sin, and then adopt me into this family. What you and I have in common is we didn't do anything to earn or deserve a place at this table. We are in the family because of Christ, and that is the gospel. And when we believe that kind of gospel message and we live that out, it changes how we relate. That story, that message builds a culture. Ray Ortland in his book on the gospel says, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. A doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. That's why we sing the gospel Every single Sunday. That's why Tim introduces a new song today. This is about everything being up on Christ, what he took for us. Now let's sing and celebrate that Christ has died, we're forgiven, Christ is raised, we are the risen. Let's sing that. Well, we already know that. Yeah, but we're going to sing it because there's nothing better to sing about than that. And celebrate it. We sing the gospel every Sunday. We hear the gospel taught in our classes and from this pulpit every Sunday. We hear the gospel in the sermon. We receive the Lord's Supper reminding us of the gospel and and communicating the power of grace to us afresh. We meet in small groups all over the city and in this building during the week to apply the gospel. This is our family culture is grace. 
This is our family ethic. This is our family story. We marinate in the message of grace because we want our church family to celebrate what God has done for us, and we need all the reminders possible about what he has done for us so that we can respond to other with that grace, one another with that grace. Brotherly affection. Family identity, family affirmation, family culture. And we experience all of those when we gather at a family meal. I'm not just talking about a potluck. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. We experience all of this family when we gather to receive the body and the blood of Christ. When we do that, we're recognizing our identity. We are participating in the, blood of the body and blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians says. We are participating or communing with Christ. But we're also communing with his people and saying, we receive this family meal as family members. We don't receive this as church attenders or even Grace Church members. I mean, those are true. But we ultimately receive this meal as family, brothers and sisters. You pass the cup to a brother. You pass the tray to a sister. You, you, we, we receive this family style because we're a family receiving the bread and the cup together. We are adopted into his family. We are not only through the cross and resurrection reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another. And so there's this horizontal dimension that we celebrate every time we receive communion. The family culture, his body broken, that we might be one. It's a gospel culture that comes from the gospel message, celebrated and deepened every time we receive this together. There's a family affirmation. I'm at the table not by my own doing. You're at the table not by your own doing. This is the reminder what he has done for us. He is the one who brings us to the table. We are more sinful than we know, yet we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we dared ever hope. And every time we receive the bread and the cup, it tells us that. Our sins, though they are many, they cost Christ his shed blood and his broken body. And yet we are more loved than we imagine because the innocent one was willing to pay that price to reconcile us to himself. That's beautiful. It's that affirmation. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.